0: I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. Now we're going to do something a little different this morning. Normally we look at one main passage and we hang out there and we study that one passage. This morning we're going to look at three main passages. Each point has a different passage we're going to look at. And if you look in your notes, you'll see that under each point I have put the reference of where we're going to be and the page number, which corresponds to the page in the Pew Bible in front of you. So what I'm going to ask you to do is as you're opening to Matthew chapter 16, that you would open to those other passages as well. Maybe put a bookmark in there or your pen or something so that when we get there, you're able to turn there pretty quickly. But we're going to look at these three different passages this morning of Scripture. And together they will be a montage of scenes from the life of Jesus Christ. And in each scene, we're going to see Jesus interacting with His disciples. And in each scene, we're going to learn something about how we should deal with fellow believers that we interact with in our own lives. This morning, we're concluding our series entitled, The Jesus Factor by looking at how Jesus deals with those who love God. Over the last several weeks, we've looked at Jesus interacting with a lot of different people. And, and what we're learning is how, by His example, we should interact with these various kinds of people that we encounter in our own lives. We looked at uh, how Jesus dealt with the, the self-righteous. He was tough with people who were self-righteous. We've seen how Jesus hangs out with sinners. We've seen how Jesus sought out the Samaritans and how Jesus had compassion on the suffering by meeting their needs. And now we're going to see how Jesus deals with the saints. With the saints. And when I say saints, I'm talking about Christians. Uh, We don't use the word saint biblically in the same way that we use it culturally. Culturally, when we talk about somebody who's a saint, we talk about somebody who's a really, really good person. Oh, they're a saint. But biblically, a saint is not a really, really good person. It's somebody who's been declared righteous by God through faith in Jesus Christ. They've been declared righteous, and so they are a saint, In other words, how do we deal with Christians? The first passage we're going to look at is found in Matthew chapter 16. And we'll see that Jesus is in a boat and he's crossing the Sea of Galilee, which is actually a lake, but he's crossing it with his disciples. And he has a conversation with them. But to understand this conversation, we have to understand the context in which it takes place. You see, in the, the passage immediately before this, in chapter 15, Jesus feeds 4,000 people. Now, he's done this twice in his ministry. He fed 5,000 men plus women and children. And then later, he fed 4,000 men plus women and children. And immediately following this miraculous event, he feeds all of these people with just a few pieces of bread and a few fish Right after that, the the Pharisees, these self-righteous teachers of the law, they come and they challenge him. Now remember, these are are the the religious leaders of the day with whom Jesus had reserved his, his harshest words and criticism. And they come to him at the beginning of chapter 16, and they say, you know, if you really are who you say you are, if you really are the Son of God, if you really are the Messiah, then show us something. Give us some evidence show us a miraculous sign that'll show now this is ridiculous, right? because all through his ministry Jesus is, is performing miracles and right previously to this question he had fed 4, thousand people and so let's pick up the story in verse 5 verses 5 through 12 when they had crossed the lake the disciples Forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. These are those self-righteous religious leaders. They discussed this among themselves and said, Is it because we didn't bring any bread? Now, I mean, these guys are dense. Look at verse 8. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you not understand do you remember the five loaves and the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it that you don't understand that I was not talking about bread, you knuckleheads? That's in the original Greek. <laughs> Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread, but against the teaching Of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, they say that familiarity breeds contempt. And I think there's probably some some truth to that. We tend to treat those closest to us with the least amount of respect. Seems like we have shorter fuses and a longer list of complaints for those we know best. We are more easily frustrated and annoyed in close quarters. When I was planning on marrying Linda uh, more than 21 years ago, we just celebrated 21 years last week, um, my mother told me, she gave me this piece of advice. She said, listen, take everything that annoys you about Linda, multiply it by 10. And if you can live with that, then marry her. Now, gratefully, there's hardly anything that annoys me about Linda. I mean, just (laughs) practically nothing. And I'm sure it's mutual. (laughs) But she said, take everything that just annoys you and, and multiply it by 10. And if you can live with that, then, then marry her. Why? Because when, you, when you're close to somebody, you're more likely to notice their shortcomings, their faults, their weaknesses, and their annoying habits. And sometimes it's just hard to handle. And I'm thinking Jesus is having one of those moments in the boat with these disciples. They've been with him for some time now, right? They they knew who he was. They had heard his amazing teaching and the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew five through seven. They heard him explain and open up the kingdom of God through the parables that he told in Matthew chapter thirteen. They'd seen him heal the sick and raise the dead and cast out demons and take on the religious establishment and 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 social and cultural boundaries. He crossed all of those, and yet here they are, unable to discern the deeper spiritual meaning of his comment. They're just dense. I can see Jesus shaking his head with frustration as he says, do you still not understand? Eugene Peterson wrote a paraphrase of the Bible and in this verse he rendered it this way, runt believers, haven't you caught on yet? See, here's the first thing that we learn from Jesus about how we need to deal with fellow believers and it is this, be patient with the faults of other believers. I think this is what Jesus is showing us, among other things, but here's what I want us to see. Be patient with the faults of other believers. Can you imagine the patience of Jesus? The infinite, holy God mingling with finite fallen and at times just downright stupid people. So often those closest to Him, those who knew Him best just missed the point altogether. Sometimes they didn't understand His teachings. They bickered with one another about which one of them was going to be greatest in his kingdom. And when he told them that he would be betrayed and crucified, they assured him that that would not happen. (laughs) But like a parent dealing with immature children, Jesus patiently endures their lack of faith, their lack of understanding, their short-sightedness, their preconceived notions, and even their cowardice. He endured it all, and with patience, he met them right where they were, and he helped them to grow. And when needed, he forgave them. You know what patience is? Patience is non-irritable love. That's not my definition. I read that, and I love that. Patience is non-irritable love. It's the kind of love that a parent needs to have for their children. Any of you parents? You know what I mean? All right. All right. It's like the love that a father had when he took his daughter to a baseball game. His name was Steven Montforto, and he was a big Phillies fan. His daughter's name was Emily, and she was three years old. And together, they sat in the upper deck, and they watched the game. But this wasn't just any game. This was a big game. It was the pennant race between the Philadelphia Phillies and the Washington Nationals. And somewhere along the way, a foul ball peeled its way back into the upper deck. And uh, and this guy leans over to catch his first ever, and what would be his only chance ever to catch a foul ball. It's a fan's dream, right? To catch a ball at a ball game. But when he handed the ball to little Emily, immediately she threw it back over the railing <laughs> and down into the lower deck. And everybody around him gasped. And he, too, was surprised that his little girl would throw away the ball. But rather than getting irritated with her, he did what a loving father should do. He wrapped his daughter up in a tender embrace. I think it's what Jesus did with his disciples. It's what Jesus does with us. I mean, just imagine the non-irritable love that Jesus shows towards you and me. And that's what we need to do for one another. Do you realize how many passages in the New Testament talk about the need for patience and forgiveness among believers? There's a reason for that. We have faults. We have shortcomings. We have annoying habits. We're like porcupines. The closer we get to one another, more likely we are to hurt one another. We need to be patient with one another. I I put a sampling of scriptures in your your notes regarding patience. Just, Just listen Therefore, and look at him as as I read, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Paul, writing to his friend Timothy, Preach the word, be prepared in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Paul writing again to his friend Timothy, but you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Paul writing to his friend Titus, teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. First Thessalonians 5:14 and we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. By the way, notice that verse, being patient doesn't mean you put up with other people's faults and shortcomings. You deal with them. Warn people who are not doing what they need to do, but you do it in a way that is patient. And Ephesians chapter 4 speaks of the need for forgiveness. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgive each other. just as Christ, Just as in Christ God forgave you. See, if we're going to do this thing called church, and if it's going to work, we have got to be patient and forgiving and compassionate with one another. By the way, what does that imply about the nature of church and what it is? It implies that the church is not just an assembly once a week. Church is not primarily just us gathering once a week for an assembly that we do in here but it is a community of relationships based on a common faith that we have in Jesus Christ. We don't need to be patient and forgiving if all we do is show up once a week and sit in here, do we? Oh, maybe a little bit. Somebody sits in your seat. You might get a little annoyed you need to be patient. If you have to park you know, a little further away than you want, you might have to be patient. But generally speaking, we don't need to practice a whole lot of patience in a place like this. Church is God-designed. It requires patience and forgiveness and compassion because it involves relationships. And not just relationships of our choosing with people that we like, with people that are like us and that we identify with, but relationships with various kinds of people from different backgrounds who have different points of views, have different interests, people who are not like us. Think about the disciples. We don't have time to look at them all day, but think about them. Matthew was a tax collector. He worked for the enemy. He worked for the Romans. Simon was a zealot. Like one of the kind of guys who would join a resistance movement, a patriot. He hated the Romans. He hated people that worked for them. And Jesus brings them together in one group as the disciples. So we need to get involved in relationships with people that are not like us. That's what the church is. And when we get involved in those kinds of relationships, the need for patience within the body of Christ becomes very evident. And as we practice patience with one another, we become more and more like Jesus. Why do you think he puts us around people that annoy us? Why do you think he puts us together with people who are not like us? Why do you think he puts people like you and I who have faults and shortcomings together and tells us to live in relationship with one another? Because it gives us the opportunity to practice patience and forgiveness and compassion with one another. All right, so the first thing we see is this. We need to be patient with the faults of other believers. Here's the second thing. The second scene in our montage is found in Luke chapter 22. So I'm going to invite you to turn there. If you're in Matthew, the next book is Mark. The very next book is Luke. You find Luke chapter 22. We're going to begin in verse 31. Luke chapter 22. This scene takes place at the last Passover meal that Jesus observed with his disciples. And there's various things going on at that Passover meal. Uh, Jesus uh, has a a conversation with Judas who's going to betray him. Jesus is teaching his disciples. They enjoy the meal together. He initiates what we call the Lord's Supper. Uh, He washes their feet, as we're going to see a little later on. A lot of things are going on at this Passover meal. But in the midst of it all, he turns to Peter, who in this passage is called Simon. That's his other name. And, and, And Peter ends up becoming one of those key figures in the church, Jesus uses Peter to be the midwife birthing this new thing called the church. And he is, he is one of the early church leaders. In fact, the New Testament, the Gospels, tell us more about the life of Peter than any other human being except Jesus Christ. So Peter is a significant figure, or he would become a significant figure in the life of the church. And Jesus turns to him in this, this, this Passover meal, as all of these things are going on, And he talks to him, beginning in verse 31. And look at what he says. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will have denied me three times you will have denied three times that you know me. See, Jesus knew that Peter would be facing some serious spiritual opposition in the coming hours. When Jesus was arrested and tried and eventually crucified, ultimately, Peter would run away in fear. He would abandon Jesus in the time of his greatest need, and then he would end up denying him publicly and repeatedly. He failed in a monumental way. And no doubt this temptation to run away when Jesus was in need, to give in to his fear, to deny Jesus, no doubt this came from Satan. And having failed, Jesus knew how Satan could use that failure to crush Peter spiritually. And so what does he do? How does he respond to that? He prays for Peter. He prays for his protection against the enemy. And by the way, notice that the Jesus knows that Peter will deny him. He knows this up front, and he still prays for him. You talk about patience. See, we live in a world of unseen spiritual realities. We have an enemy whose goal is to ruin us. He cannot take away our salvation. He doesn't have that kind of power. Our salvation is granted to us by the power of God. And no one can undo what God has done. He can't take away our salvation, but He can wreak havoc in our spiritual lives. And His weapons are temptation and deception. If you were in Sunday school this morning in one of our adult classes, we looked at this in the story of the fall of Adam and Eve in the book of Genesis. Here's how it works. Satan knows that life is most fulfilling and God is most glorified when we surrender to Him and we live in obedience to Him. That is when life is most fulfilling. That is when God is most glorified. Remember, what is our purpose here? We see it every week. It's in our bulletins on the screen. Part of our purpose, first thing, is honoring God with our lives. God is honored when we surrender to Him, when we obey Him. We talked about it in Sunday school. That's a, a form of worship. But Satan doesn't want God to be honored. And he doesn't want you to experience fulfillment and joy in your life. So He'll give you alternatives. He'll give you different choices. And he'll try to convince you that these choices are every bit as valid as the choices that God has given you. He'll inspire a world system that'll sell you on the idea that you can be every bit as happy and fulfilled living on your own terms with you calling the shots instead of God. He'll try to convince you that real freedom and real pleasure are found outside of the boundaries that God has set for us knowing all along the heartache and the pain and the destruction that it will cause in your life. He'll sell you on this idea. Oh, it's really good. It's real. Listen, there's something waiting for you. God's holding out on you. He set this boundary here because you know there's something really good over there. And He knows when you go over there, there's nothing but heartache and pain and destruction. Or He may do to you what He did to Peter. He may use your circumstances, the, the tough stuff in your life, the hard stuff in your life, to call into question something about the nature of God. He'll sow seeds of doubt and fear that will cause you to wonder if God really cares, or if He's really able to come through for you, if He really knows what's going on. And instead of living in the confidence that comes from faith in Almighty God, we find ourselves living a, a double-minded life. Kind of, sort of, trusting God, but not really with every part of our life. And that brings anxiety and fear and a lack of spiritual strength. And once you've taken the bait, whatever it is, whether you've given into to the temptation or whether you, you begin to fail to, to trust in God as being who He is, once you've taken the bait, Satan will forever remind you what a failure you are as a Christian. How can you call yourself a Christian? You didn't really trust God when you were going through that thing. How can you call yourself a Christian when you do what you've done? I know what you've done. How can you call yourself a Christian? He'll remind you of your failure if you let him. That's how he operates. So no wonder that when Jesus taught us to pray, he included this line, Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is how we should pray for ourselves. This is how we should pray for one another. We are sheep together in God's flock and there is a wolf out there on the prowl seeking to wreak havoc in our lives. And We need to pray for one another. The Apostle Paul said it this way. Look in your notes. This is Ephesians chapter 6. For us, struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And then a few verses later, With this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. The great Apostle Paul, who gave us more of the New Testament than any other single person, struggles with fear and needs prayer. Listen, how much more do you and I? So how do we do this, practically speaking? I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, you need to pray for believers. And we could leave it there and kind of walk away going, oh, no, I really ought to do that. How How do we practically do that? Well, this is my suggestion. Pray for those people in your Sunday school class. You're in a small group, a Sunday school class, there's only so many people in there. It's a manageable size. Pray for those people in your Sunday school class. If you don't have one, get one. Pray for each person by name. Pray for their spiritual lives, not just their physical needs. Those are important. When people bring up a question, this is going on in my life, or I've got a a family member that's going through this, we need to pray for those. But but let's go beyond that. Let's pray for their spiritual needs. Because listen, whether you realize it or not, whether people verbalize it or not, the enemy is active in the lives of people in this church. And in every church. We're not unique. We're not that special. But he's at work in the lives of people. You may or you may not see it, but there are people hurting. There are people struggling. There are marriages that are teetering on the brink. There are people dealing with addictions. There are things going on in the lives of people and we need to pray for them. Now let's look at one more scene. It says in John chapter 13. You're in the Gospel of Luke. Turn over one more book to the Gospel of John. This last scene that we're going to look at, like the one before, it also takes place at this last Passover meal that Jesus is having with his disciples. But we're going to look at it in the Gospel of John because he includes uh, an account that the other Gospels don't include. And if we begin reading at verse 1, here's what John says. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, you do not realize what I'm doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You know, here's dim-witted Peter again, (laughs) shooting off his mouth. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. He's all over the map. I love Peter. He makes me feel better. Verse 10, Jesus answered, Those who have, have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that's why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. All along in this series, what we've been saying is that Jesus models for us how we should interact with other people. But here he states it explicitly. I have set an example for you that you should do as I've done for you. That's very clear, isn't it? It doesn't take a lot of in-depth study for us to understand what he means here. Even though he is the Lord, even though he is the master, he acted as a servant to his disciples and told them to do the same for one another. We understand that, don't we? We, we, we know what's going on. Jesus was doing something practical for these men. They walked on a lot of dusty roads. They, they wore sandals. They did a lot of walking as a primary means of transportation. Their feet would sweat. They would get dust on their feet. It it gets kind of nasty. So washing their feet and keeping them clean became a part of their routine. And, And at the home of a wealthy person, there would be a servant there that would do that job. And so by doing this, Jesus shows us three things about serving one another. And the first thing is this. In the kingdom of God, serving is a sign of greatness. In the kingdom of God, serving other people is a sign of greatness. Not in our world, right? Typically speaking, typically speaking, in our world, being served by other people is a sign of great. How do you know somebody who's great? Well, they've got a big entourage, right? That goes with them. They've got, they've got an advanced team that goes ahead of them. They've got somebody to hold the umbrella over them. They've got somebody that's going to, you know, they've got all these people serving them. Why? Because they're a, a great person. But Jesus, the greatest of all, turns that notion upside down by kneeling at the stinky feet of his disciples and acting as their servant. Listen, I sold shoes for a living when I was in college. I've dealt with people's feet. And not in this context. Much worse, I'm sure, in this context. But dealing with people's feet is a very lowly thing, let me tell you. But here's Jesus serving them. Second, serving others is not contingent on their worthiness Every one of these disciples would abandon Jesus in the hour of his greatest need. as we've already seen, Peter would end up deny, denying him. Jesus was the only one in that room that day who deserved to be served. He was the only one. And yet here he is serving the others. Third, serving others is the path to blessing. Jesus said, now, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. On a recent road trip that we took, we drove up to Georgia, I think it was last week, and Linda looked up some riddles for us uh, to, to try to figure out just to pass the time. Well, here, here's a riddle for the Christian life What is it that you receive once you've given it away? And it's a blessing. When you bless others by serving them, you are in turn blessed. And by the way, that isn't karma. There's no such thing as karma. Karma is a pagan idea. Karma is this this impersonal force in the universe that keeps everything in balance. That's nonsense. This is simply living life as God intended. And life is always better when we live it according to God's purpose and plan. And His purpose and His plan for us as believers is to serve one another. So, as we do this thing called church, as we live life together, how are we to interact with one another? How are we to treat one another? we're, We're to be patient with one another because we have faults we're to pray for one another particularly for the protection from the enemy let's lift each other up let's 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 be a shield through prayer for one another and then finally we're to serve one another we are a family of faith not a family in a biological sense although we have biological families within our church But we are a family of faith. It is our faith in Jesus Christ and the presence of His Holy Spirit within us that binds us together. And if you want to know more about what it means to be a part of a family of faith, if you're interested in what it means to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I'd love to talk to you about that. Because being saved... There's a, there's a lot to it. Part of it is, is coming in faith to Jesus Christ and receiving the forgiveness that he offers us, yes. It is entering into a relationship with Jesus. But once we've entered into that relationship with Jesus, part of being a Christian living out that Christian life is entering into a relationship with God's family. And if you've never done that, I'd love to talk to you about that. In a moment, we're going to stand. We're going to sing a song of invitation. When we do, you can let me know that you're interested in finding out more about what this is all about. What does it mean to put my faith in Christ? What does it mean to be a part of the family of faith? You can come on down when we stand and sing and talk to me this morning. Or you could fill out that communication card if you'd like. There's a place for your name and phone number. Notice, I think it's the second one down. There's a box you can check that says, I want to talk to somebody about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe I'll be here after the service. You can catch me after the service if you'd like. and Just say, you know, I'd just like to spend a few minutes to talk to you about this. Give me a call, send me an email, do something. But if God is prompting you, if he's moving your heart, say, you know, this is something I need to deal with in my own life. This is something I need to investigate and find out for myself what it means, really, to be a Christian, to be forgiven, to be a part of God's family. Listen, I'd love to talk to you about what God has done for you. Would you do that? Maybe you have another decision to make this morning about becoming an official part of this family of faith and through membership, or, or baptism, you've put your faith in Jesus Christ. You, say, you know, I've never taken care of that, that, that thing called baptism, that, that, that step of obedience once we become a part of God's faith. Maybe there's something else going on in your life. Maybe you need somebody to pray with you. Maybe you've got one of those burdens I've been talking about this morning, or, 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 or the enemy has been at work in your life in a particular way, and you're struggling with something, and you just need somebody to pray with you. I'm always down here. If I'm busy, you know, there's others you can you can grab that'll deacons, brad, somebody will be happy to come and and pray with you and spend some time. Whatever the case might be, if you need to respond to God in some way this morning, this is his time of invitation. Father, we thank you for Jesus and the example he is to us. Lord, we know he's he's much more than just an example. He's our redeemer, he's our savior. He is your plan for for the the rescue mission to rescue us, Father, from sin and death. And we're so grateful for that. But we know, in addition to all of that, as he spent those those few years here on this earth, and as these faithful witnesses recorded what they heard and saw, Father, we know that he is an example to us about how we're to live our lives, how we're to interact in relationship with others. Lord, help us this morning as a family of faith, to live with one another as the Lord Jesus lived with His disciples. Lord, help us to be patient. Help us to pray for one another. Help us to serve one another so that we might express the character of Christ within the family of faith. Lord, we thank You that You have called us here to this place to worship You together. And Father, I pray for anybody that may not be connected beyond Sunday morning. Lord, I pray that you would draw us all into relationships that go beyond this hour that we spend here through Sunday school, through ministering together in other ways, so that we might really live out these relationships that you've called us into. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.